1952, Charlie Chaplin was promoting his final movie, Limelight, all across the globe. When it came time to return to America, he was struck with some rather shocking news. He had been exiled from ever returning to the United States. In this season finale episode, we're going to expose the forgotten history of a well-discussed phrase, cancel culture, how it started, and how long the idea of cancel culture has existed amongst Hollywood and even some Christians for quite some time. Now, time for a pop quiz. Which of these major beloved artists have been canceled before? Is it A, Taylor Swift, B, Kevin Hart, C, Matthew McConaughey, or D, Martha Stewart? Again, I'll ask and we'll answer this a little bit later on. Which of these major beloved artists have been canceled before? Taylor Swift, Kevin Hart, Matthew McConaughey, or Martha Stewart? We'll answer that question later on, but first, I want to tell you the story of how I first got exposed to the idea of cancel culture on one of my own TV shows. I was working on a late night show, and it was right when everything broke out about the Me Too movement. It was the first time we had even heard the hashtag Me Too, and as the nature of the show I was doing, we wrote jokes about topical things that were going on. We were late night writers. And I specifically remember a debate that had gone on in the studio when this story broke out. The question was, do we talk about the Me Too movement or do we not because it has the potential to cancel? And I remember just how split it was because some people said, no, if we do it, we could also find ourselves a little bit on the cancel side. Or if we don't do it, then we're going to regret not being a part of, of the voice with all this. Either way, we knew that we were in a completely different reality of comedy than we had ever been before. We are finding ourselves in a new level for comedians. The fact is the phrase cancel culture experienced notable growth in 2016 and 2017, which was around the time I was working on that show. And particularly on Twitter, according to research by Insider and Merriam-Webster and Vox, Insider identified fewer than 100 tweets or threads with the phrase cancel culture before 2018. And when cancel culture finally caught on, it really took off. But it might surprise you to know that even before the term cancel culture existed, celebrities, artists, musicians, and actors have been canceled from people, religions, and even the government. Charlie Chaplin experienced the latter at the very end of his career. Sir Charles Spencer Chaplin Jr. was an English comic, actor, filmmaker, and composer who rose to fame in the era of silent film. He became a worldwide icon through his screen persona, The Tramp, and is still considered one of film industry's most iconic figures. But in the mid-1940s, Charlie Chaplin was involved in a series of trials that occupied most of his time and significantly affected his public image. The troubles stemmed from his affair with an aspiring actress named Joan Barry, who, with uh, her, he was involved intermittently between June of 1941 and the autumn of 1942. Joan Barry uh, displayed an obsessive behavior and was twice arrested after they separated, then reappeared the following year and announced that she was pregnant with Charlie Chaplin's child. As Chaplin denied the claim, Barry filed a paternity suit against him, and the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, J. Edgar Hoover, who had a long suspicion of Charlie Chaplin's political leanings, used that opportunity 
to generate negative publicity about him. Now, this is a really interesting thing because it started off just about a relationship and yet here's J. Edgar Hoover coming in to take advantage of this moment. And it became kind of a part of a smear campaign to damage Charlie Chaplin's image. The FBI named him in four indictments related to the Barry case. Most serious of these was an alleged violation of the Mann Act, is what it's called. And the Mann Act prohibits the transportation of women across state boundaries for sexual purposes. Historian Otto Frederick called this an absurd prosecution of an ancient statute. Yet, if Charlie Chaplin was found guilty of this, he would face 23 years in jail. Now, there were three charges that lacked sufficient evidence to proceed to court, but what they needed was any kind of an accusation to smear his reputation, and it really paid off. Even though Charlie Chaplin was acquitted, only two weeks after he was acquitted, on April 4th, the case was frequently in headline news, with Newsweek calling it the biggest public relations scandal of its time. The negative reaction to his latest movie was largely the result of changes in Charlie Chaplin's public image. Along with damage of the Joan Barry scandal, he was publicly accused of being a communist. His political activity had heightened during World War II when he campaigned for the opening of a second front to help the Soviet Union and supported various Soviet-American friendship groups. He was also friendly with several suspected communists and attended functions given by Soviet diplomats in Los Angeles. It was in the political climate of 1940s America, and so these activities meant Chaplin was considered by many people as dangerously progressive or immoral. The FBI wanted him out of the country, and they launched an official investigation in early 1947. Now, Charlie Chaplin denied being a communist, and he instead called himself a peacemonger, but he felt the government's effort to suppress the ideology was an unacceptable infringement of civil liberties. Unwilling to be quiet about the issue, he openly protested against the trials of Communist Party members and the activities of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Charlie Chaplin received a subpoena to appear before the HUAC, but was not called to testify. As his activities were widely reported in the press and Cold War fears grew, questions were raised about his failure to take an American citizenship. All of this got built up and the media ate it up completely. And not just the media, but also the government. In fact, uh, John E. Rankin, who helped establish the House Un-American Activities Committee, said, and he told Congress this in June 1947, he said, Chaplin's very life in Hollywood is detrimental to the moral fabric of America. If he is deported, his lonesome pictures can be kept from before the eyes of the American youth. He should be deported and gotten rid of at once. It wasn't just the government that accused Charlie Chaplin of being pro-communist, but also his fellow members in Hollywood, including... George Orwell. In 2003, declassified British archives belonging to the British Foreign Office revealed that George Orwell secretly accused Chaplin of being a secret communist and a friend of the USSR. 
Chaplin's name was one of 35 that Orwell gave to the Information Research Department, the IRD, which was a secret British Cold War propaganda department which worked closely with the CIA, according to a 1949 document known as Orwell's List. In the midst of the tension, everything finally came to an uncomfortable closure in 1952. Charlie Chaplin had completed what had become his last film, and he decided to hold the world premiere of Limelight, that's the title of the movie, in London, since it was the setting of the film. As he left Los Angeles, he expressed a premonition that he would not be returning. And the very next day, United States Attorney General James P. McGarney revoked Chaplin's re-entry permit and stated that he would have to submit to an interview concerning his political views and moral behavior in order to re-enter the U.S. Although McGarney told the press that he had a pretty good case against Chaplin, it wasn't released until 1980s when FBI files were released that the U.S. government had no real evidence to prevent Charlie Chaplin's re-entry, and it's likely that he would have gained entry had he have applied for it. However, when Charlie Chaplin received this information of him not being able to come back, he privately decided to cut ties with the United States, and he said this, Whether I re-entered that unhappy country or not was of little consequence to me. I would like to have told them that the sooner I was rid of the hate begarreled atmosphere, the better. That I was fed up of America's insults and moral pomposity. Because of his property remained in America, Charlie Chaplin refrained from saying anything negative about the incident to the press. But the scandal attracted vast attention, and Chaplin and his film were warmly received in Europe, but not in America. No, it was actually in America that the hostility towards him continued, and although it received positive reviews, the movie Limelight was subject to a wide-scale boycott. Reflecting on this, it's written that Charlie Chaplin's fall from an unprecedented level of popularity may be the most dramatic in the history of stardom in America. Charlie Chaplin was simply cancelled. And although Charlie Chaplin had become so popular at the height of his career, there's no doubt that it ended abruptly by the same people who once loved him. So we can see cancel culture carried on today in Hollywood in the exact same way. It is usually the same people who once cherished somebody that will then turn on them in a matter of minutes. One example of this is comedian Louis C.K. Louis C.K. is an American comedian born on September 12, 1967 in Washington, D.C. Upon moving to suburban Boston, C.K. wanted to become a writer and comedian, citing George Carlin, Bill Cosby, and Richard Pryor as some of his influences. At the age of 17, Louis C.K. directed his first comedic short film called Trash Day, and it all went up from there. He was doing stand-up comedy, and he gained gradual success performing alongside Dennis Leary and Lenny Clark, opening for Jerry Seinfeld and hosting comedy clubs. He moved to Manhattan in 1989, where he was still honing his craft, and he began to write for Late Night with Conan O'Brien from 93 to 94, then Late Show with David Letterman in 1995. It was in 1996 that HBO released his first half-hour comedy special, though the next several years he focused on filmmaking and it wasn't until he released his next comedy special on HBO in 2005, about a, a decade later. 
Then he released another special in 2008 and another one in 2010. And this is when Louis C.K. really started to blow up. He got a deal from FX for the show Louis, a comedic version of his life that he wrote, directed, edited, produced, and starred in. The show was a hit, and Louis was nominated for five different Emmys during the run of the show from 2011 to 2015. Having garnered massive success through his film, TV, and especially stand-up work, Louis was at the top of his game in 2015 when he sold out Madison Square Garden three times in a single tour in 2015. However, this would also be the beginning of the end for Louis C.K. 2015 is also when a myriad of rumors began to circulate about Louis C.K.'s behavior towards female co-workers and professionals. Roseanne Barr was the first to come out with this stating in an interview that there are stories of Louis C.K., in front of women comics and writers. Now, Louis never said anything on this as the rumors continued to pile up over the next two years. It wasn't until the September of 2017 when he said in a New York Times interview that they're rumors, that's all. I don't think talking about this stuff in the press is a good idea. It was around that time that Louis C.K. was set to release a movie titled I Love You Daddy with articles before the interview calling the movie a success. However, it was after this interview that many other outlets picked up the story and articles in October of that year would go on to change the tone drastically. There were many articles where people first said that the movie that Louis C.K. had made was fantastic. And then after these accusations really started to gain uh, some momentum, there were several people that had previously said that the movie was great and they had come back and said, actually, upon watching it, a second time, I couldn't even finish it. This is a terrible movie. And it was really interesting to see the same media that used to promote him and say that he was a great comic, all of a sudden now saying that he was terrible as a comedian and terrible as a person. And it wasn't just people in the industry. It was also his own close friend, Stephen Colbert. On November 9th, the distributor of the movie canceled the New York premiere of the film and a scheduled performance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, which was promoting the movie, but that was also canceled. Later that same day, The Times published allegations of sexual misconduct from five women against Louis C.K., who all were comedians. All of these women described instances of Louis' sexual misconduct. Now, after freshly being canceled... The Orchard announced that it would not distribute the film I Love You, Daddy. FX cut ties with Louis C.K. Netflix canceled his upcoming special. HBO dropped his appearance on an upcoming show and removed his content from their on-demand library. TBS scrapped his show The Cops. And Illumination and Disney Channel replaced Louis C.K. with other voices. Now, Louis C.K. said that this resulted in a loss of approximately $35 million in income. Now, I want to be clear, I do not agree with his actions. I don't agree with, I'm not defending him. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, what he did was, in fact, uh, you know, not true or any of that stuff. I simply want to point out how much it changed overnight from the opinions of Hollywood. It changed quite quickly. And that's usually what happens with the idea of cancel culture. Now, there's many other people who have fallen prey to the hypocrisy of cancel culture, such as Mel Gibson, Marilyn Manson, the uh, Dixie Chicks, and many others. Very, very few of these have fallen victim to cancel culture and ever found themselves coming back 
and reaching the same amount of popularity that they had before. But there are a couple of examples, one of which is Taylor Swift. At a very young age, Taylor Swift, of course, became a massive success, selling out shows and tours all across the world, winning countless awards along the way. It was in 2016, a year after being named Billboard's Woman of the Year, that she got into a debacle with Kanye West and Kim Kardashian over lyrics in a Kanye West song. The lyrics were about alleged relations that they had together, but when Taylor Swift replied saying that they were untrue and asked him to remove them, Kim Kardashian swiftly responded with a video that he had stated the opposite. This started a massive movement on Twitter calling Swift a snake and to hashtag cancel Taylor Swift. An article published by the BBC dives into what Swift fell, uh, felt and recollected about this time in her career in life. Taylor told Vogue magazine, receiving messages like that could be perceived as being told to kill yourself. When you say something is canceled, it's not a TV show, it's a human being, she said. She also said, I do not think there are that many people who can actually understand what it's like to have millions of people hate you very loudly. Taylor was resilient, though, and she continued to claw her way back into stardom through the release of more music, and she said, I knew it was the only way I could survive it. It was the only way I could preserve my mental health. Now, I mentioned before that cancel culture is hypocritical. The Bible, of course, says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but yet they only seek to cancel some people in this culture. Now, if we were to look back in history, there are plenty of historic entertainers who should, by today's standards, be canceled, but yet we still enjoy their art today. And I, I believe, as I, I am about to give you a list of some of these artists and a very quick a side note of what it was that probably would have gotten them canceled to this day, I think it's important to know that every person, if you were to look at any person and you were to uncover whatever you could find, I'm sure you would be able to find something that is worth them being canceled. And again, I'm not defending any human being or any person. I'm simply saying that just as it says in the word of God, all are sinners. But yet in the cancel culture, what they tend to do is find heroes and make them seem perfect until it becomes inconvenient and they want to cancel them as well. Here's a list of a couple celebrities or a couple of artists that are still celebrated today and a quick reason as to why they would probably be canceled based on today's standards. Now, Pablo Picasso, everybody loves a Picasso, but yet I bet you didn't know that he was considered a mass misogynist who had kids with several different women, cheated on them all with hundreds of other women, and is on record as calling women machines for suffering. Elvis Presley had had uh, relations with underage girls at one point, and there were rumors of that that had uh, gone on for quite a while. Bob Kane stole the rights to Batman from the actual artist. Chuck Berry was caught with videos of women in the bathroom, and John Lennon was accused of physically abusing women. And while there are many others like this, one specific person stands out to me that I think is worth talking about. And this is a person whose stories are still celebrated to this day. His name is Charles Dickens. Charles John Huffman Dickens was born on February 7, 1812, 
in Port Sea Island, Hampshire. In 1832, at the age of 20, Dickens was energetic and increasingly self-confident. He enjoyed mimicry and popular entertainment, lacked a clear, specific sense of what he wanted to become, and yet he knew he wanted fame. He joined an acting guild in the area and went to a few auditions that didn't pan out, and when he missed an audition due to illness, he decided to set out to become a writer instead. In 1833, Dickens submitted his first story, A Dinner at Poplar Walk, to the London periodical monthly magazine. William Barrow, Dickinson's uncle on his mother's side, offered him a job on the Mirror of Parliament, and he worked in the House of Commons for the first time early in 1832. He rented rooms at an inn and worked at a pol as a political journalist, reporting on parliamentary debates, and he traveled across Britain to cover election campaigns for the Morning Chronicle. His journalism in the form of sketches in periodicals formed his first collection of pieces, published in 1836, Sketches by Boz. Dickens made rapid progress, both professionally and socially. He began a friendship with William Harrison Ainsworth, the author of the Highwayman novel Rookwood, which was published in 1834, amongst many other authors. Now, many of these men, these authors, became close friends, and he even met his first publisher, John Macaron, at the house. Dickens created an episodic series titled The Fickwick Papers, along with the illustrator known as Fizz. The Pickwick Papers, while not an instant success, gained a large amount of popularity after the introduction of Sam Wheeler in the fourth episode. The final installment of this series sold over 40,000 copies and has gone on to be called the most important single novel of the Victorian era. The unprecedented success led to numerous spin-offs and merchandise ranging from Pickwick cigars, playing cards, China figurines, uh, Sam, Sam Weller puzzles, Weller boot polish, and joke books. Dickens, now a massive success started writing the widely known series Oliver Twist. Now, Oliver Twist was published in 1838, became one of Dickens' better not known stories, and was the first Victorian novel with a child protagonist. And his success as a novelist continued. The young Queen Victoria read both Oliver Twist and the Pickwick Papers, staying up until midnight to discuss them. Nicholas Nickleby... The Old Curiosity Shop, and finally his first historical novel, Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Riots of 80, as part of the Master Humphreys Clock series, were all published in monthly installments before being made into books. After a trip to the United States, Dickens began working on the first of his Christmas stories, A Christmas Carol, which was written in 1843. A Christmas Carol was an instant success and is widely seen adapted in modern Christmas entertainment to this very day. He moved to Switzerland in 1846, where he worked on another of his long list of masterpieces, David Copperfield. At this point, his work started to show a more mature side, possibly to match his own maturity or to reach a new audience. Continuing later into his life, Dickens maintained to be a household name and worked on many projects. In 1857, Dickens hired professional actresses for the play The Frozen Deep, written by him and his protege, Wilkie Collins. Dickens had an affair with actress Ellen Turnin, 
And then they continued their relationship for the rest, rest of Dickens' life. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Dickens was 45 and Tiernan was 18 when he made the decision to separate from his wife, Catherine. After the divorce in 1858, Dickens' now ex-wife took with her one child, leaving the other children to be raised by her sister. After this, Dickens started a smear campaign on Catherine to tarnish her public reputation and help garner support for his life with his new mistress. Around the same time, Dickens also hosted public readings of his books to raise money for a hospital that was under financial crisis, raising £3,000 alone. After his divorce, Dickens started writing two more series, A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations. Charles Dickens passed away at the age of 58 on June 8, 1870 from a stroke in his home. Did you happen to pick up on a couple of the interesting things? You hear all the good sides of the story, and perhaps some of that was very uh, familiar to you, and I was hoping it was. I'm, I'm hoping that you heard some of those books and you said, oh, I've read those. I read them in high school. I loved them. I still read them, or I, I watch stories based on that, that book. But then you get to a place where you hear me say that Charles Dickens ran a smear campaign against his ex-wife all because he wanted to feel accepted with cheating on his ex-wife with an 18-year-old woman. That was part of his story. Charles Dickens had a really interesting backstory in that. He he did that, and people would say nowadays the reputation is that Charles Dickens is a Christian. That is a, a reputation. But Charles Dickens considered himself to be a Christian only in the broadest of senses. That was his words. He was outspoken in his dislike of evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism, but especially in his fiction, he's very reluctant to make professions of a specific faith beyond the most general sort of Christianity. By today's standards, Dickens should be canceled due to his affair with a woman almost 30 years younger than him, launching a campaign to ruin his wife's reputation, and making very few attempts to ever see his children again after the divorce, with one of his children even saying that they knew his book characters more than they knew their own dad. However, we still see a Christmas carol every year for Christmas, and we teach a tale of two cities in our schools. Why is this the same judgment not passed on to those in the entertainment past? Now, I, I don't want to see these people get canceled, of course, and I appreciate the great leaps and bounds that made that they made for entertainment, and I can see the other good things that they have done throughout their life. But it brings back the idea that if you look at someone, if you turn a stone over, you will find something worth canceling. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I believe as Christians we find some hope in here, which is that we can see that at the end of the day, each and every one of us are in need of someone else, and that, of course, is Christ. Now, there are some stories that I've just read where they seem hopeless and they're filled with darkness, but there is one Hollywood personality, and there are other stories, but in this episode, I'll highlight one Hollywood personality that has come to Christ despite the pain and negatives in his past, and that is Justin Bieber. While searching for videos of a different singer, Scooter Braun, a former marketing executive of So So Def Records and Recordings, clicked on one of Bieber's 2007 YouTube video by accident. He was impressed, and Braun tracked down the theater that Bieber was performing in, 
located Bieber's school, and finally contacted his mother, who was initially reluctant because of Braun's Judaism. However, church elders convinced her to let Bieber go with Braun. At age 13, Bieber went to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to record demo tapes. Bieber began singing for Usher one week later. This was the beginning of a massive roller coaster ride of success for the young Justin Bieber, who went on to become an instant success. Then in 2009, Bieber's first year releasing music, he became the first solo artist to have four songs chart in the top 40 of the Hot 100 before the release of a debut album had even come out with the songs One Time, One Less Lonely Girl, Love Me, and Favorite Girl. Uh, it was at the age of 15 that he had found himself with seven song uh, charting the top 100s of a debut album. His success continued as he garnered over 100 award nominations, several record-breaking tours and accomplishments, and he's had three Diamond-certified singles. Now, this level of success got to him because, as you could imagine, at a young age, it would get to you. And there had become a long list of legal records and fan backlash after a while. Bieber had multiple arrests, legal charges against him, consisting of DUIs, uh, resisting arrest, vandalism, assault, and dangerous driving. Following Bieber's arrest on the DUI charge, more than 270,000 people petitioned in the White House seeking to have him deported from the United States. Sounds very Charlie Chaplinist, if you will. Although the number of signatures received was sufficient to require a response under published White House guidelines, the Obama administration declined uh, to comment on the petition. Bieber still has a warrant out for his arrest for failure to appear in court in Argentina. It's a really interesting fact to share. Now, with all of that going up, uh, along with mental health issues and drug addictions, then enter the Lord. Jesus really seemed to come in and change his heart. And he has now been baptized, and he said this about his past. Take a listen. Do you think that if you hadn't redefined what Jesus was and reclaimed it into something that was worthy of practice for you, mm -hmm. which then led you on a path of reconciliation with your wife. Mm -hmm. Do you think the person that, you, the you of then, was on a path of self-destruction? Do you feel that you were on a self, you were self-destructing? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would have, for sure, 100%, yeah. 100%. It would have been, it would have been no bono. It was bad. It would have been, yeah, I don't know if I'd be alive for sure. It was dark, really dark. So I'm very, very grateful to have influences in my life that have played a huge part in me, seeing their relationship with Jesus and their relationship with their wives and their relationship with their kids and saying, that's what I want mm. and um, striving after that. This section of the interview shows how his renewed relationship with Jesus helped restore not only his life, but his marriage as well. In recent years, Bieber has gone on to do worship concerts, put out a Christian album, and he's not been shy to share his faith and just what a relationship can do, even for the most downtrodden of us all. Sometimes, though, the spirit of cancel culture can arise at the most surprising places, and it becomes clear that cancel culture is generally used for someone's gain. Enter William Tyndale. William Tyndale was 
an English biblical scholar and linguist who became a leading figure in the Protestant Reformation in the years leading up to his execution. He's well known as a translator of the Bible into English and was influenced by the works of prominent Protestant reformers such as Erasmus of Rotterdam and, of course, Martin Luther. The chain of events that led to the creation of Tyndale's New Testament possibly began in 1522, when Tyndale acquired a copy of the German New Testament. Tyndale began a translation into English using a Greek text compiled by uh, Erasmus from several manuscripts older than the Latin translation authorized by the Roman Catholic Church. Tyndale made his purpose known to the Bishop of London, but was refused permission to produce this quote-unquote heretical text. Thwarted in England, Tyndale moved. A partial edition was put into print in 1525 in Cologne, of which there is only one fragment left in British Library. But before the work could be completed, Tyndale was betrayed to the authorities and forced to flee to Worms, where the first complete edition of the New Testament was published in 1526. Two revised versions were later published in 1534 and 1536, both personally revised by him. Tyndale's translation were condemned in England, where his work was banned and copies burned. Catholic officials, prominently Thomas More, charged that he had purposely mistranslated the ancient text in order to promote anti-clericalism and heretical views. In particular, they cited the terms church, priest, do penance, and charity, which became in the Tyndale translation as congregation, elder, repent, and love, challenging key doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Betrayed to church officials in 1536, he was defrocked in an elaborate public ceremony and turned over to the civil authorities to be strangled to death and burned at the stake. His last words, as said to have been, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Tyndale's translation of the Bible was used for subsequent English translations, including the Great Bible and the Bishop's Bible, authorized by the Church of England. It was in 1611, after seven years of work, the 47 scholars who produced the King James Version drew extensively from Tyndale's original work and other translations that descended from his. One estimate suggests that the New Testament in the King James Version is 83% Tyndale's words and the Old Testament is 76%. The work of Tyndale continued to play a key role in spreading Reformation ideas across the English-speaking world and eventually across the British Empire. The idea of justice is often taken out of context in society due to our fallen nature. As I've said, the Bible says that we are all sinners, and so I encourage all of us to think on to what truly means to be just and what truly it means to be guilty. And if we are all guilty, then we are all in need of a Savior, and thankfully we have a Savior who is a just judge and a just God in our everyday lives. And Tyndale's story reminds me of just how much culture can change their perspective and their mindset. And also how much when any time a mob tries to form, it is usually in front of public because the public can join the mob and 
can do what somebody else is wanting them to do. And Tyndale, as a perfect example, it was banned, and only seven years later was his own works used. But yet it was his work of, of working really hard to get the Word of God out there that got him canceled and killed. And yet, seven years later, it was used by the King of England himself. That is a really ironic but really true situation of what cancel culture can do. So if you ever find yourself staring at cancel culture and wanting to join the mob, I recommend that you take a step back as a believer you try to look at what you're seeing and look at what you're hearing. And before you join, ask yourself, is this something that could change in 20 years? Is this something that could change in seven years? What side are you really on? And I would hope that each and every one of us would find ourselves on the side of true justice, which only comes from the one true God who is a good judge. And with that being said, this comes to a close of the first season of Forgotten Hollywood. I look forward to bonus episodes coming through. So keep focused on our podcast. You will see bonus episodes with interviews with many other people, as well as a preparation for season two. I will let you know as soon as we have a release date. And we are so thankful that you have been listening, that you have been sharing, and that you've been a part of Forgotten Hollywood. Oh,